0: No one knows exactly where or when the killer claimed his first victim. According to one theory, he may have started killing as far back as 1963 with the unsolved murders of teenagers Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards on a beach near Santa Barbara, California. Another theory linked the killer to the 1966 murder of college co-ed Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California. Someone claiming to be the killer mailed a typed confession letter to a local newspaper and the police department. The writer provided an account of the murder and added, Yes, I did make that call to you also. It was just a warning. Beware, I am stalking your girls now. Six months after the murder, three virtually identical handwritten letters were sent to the local newspaper the police department and the victim's father. Once again, the message seemed designed to create terror. Bates had to die. There will be more. The writer signed the message with a small symbol which resembled the letter Z. This case was still unsolved in December 1968 when two teenagers were murdered on Lake Herman Road near Benicia, California. At that time, the killer stayed in the shadows and remained anonymous. Then, in the summer of 1969, the killer came out of the shadows and chose a name for himself, marking the beginning of the Zodiac story.
1: Zodiac sent the 408 cipher 50 years ago, and to this day, the 408 remains one of the most interesting ciphers in history.
2: This is the Zodiac speaking. I like killing people because it is so much
3: fun. This guy is a pathological, a psycho uh, killer. I just don't want this to happen again to anyone else. I wish somebody would catch this guy. I don't care who it is. Just somebody catch him. Zodiac said he shall never be be caught.
0: This is Zodiac. A to Z. On the night of December 20th, 1968, a woman was driving along Lake Herman Road in Venetia, California. As she approached a popular lover's lane spot, the woman noticed the bodies of two teenagers lying on the ground. Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday had been out on their first official date, although they had been spending time together for at least two weeks. Earlier that evening, David and Betty Lou had promised her parents that they would return by 11 p.m. But witnesses saw the couple sitting in David's Rambler station wagon on Lake Herman Road around 11.10 p.m. By the time the bodies were discovered, Betty Lou Jensen was dead from five gunshot wounds in her back, and David Faraday was dying from a gunshot wound to his head. Bullets were recovered from the vehicle and investigators speculated that the killer had fired shots to force the victims out of the Rambler. David may have been shot first, causing Betty Lou to run away from the killer, and he then fired five shots into her back. Shell casings were also found, and one witness reported seeing a vehicle parked next to the Rambler at the time of the shooting. The subsequent investigation explored the possibility that the crime was somehow drug-related, but the evidence indicated no connection. David Faraday was allegedly involved in a confrontation with a marijuana dealer when the teenager threatened to report the man's activity to police, but investigators concluded that the incident was not related to the murders. Another teenage boy was briefly considered a suspect due to his previous relationship with Betty Lou Jensen, but investigators confirmed his alibi and concluded that he was not responsible for the shooting. The case remained unsolved into the new year, and by the summer of 1969, many people wanted to believe that the killer was gone and the nightmare was over. Everything changed on the night of July 4th, at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, approximately two miles northwest of the crime scene on Lake Herman Road. Twenty-two-year-old Darlene Farron was a fun-loving free spirit with many friends and many male admirers. She worked as a waitress and raised her infant daughter with her husband, Dean Farron. I don't really wouldn't
3: know how to describe it to this outward outgoing and happy and just she's just a young, happy, friendly girl. We worked in the same restaurant, Pancake House. When she first started there she was married. They living in a motel and so uh, and I I knew a girl that just needed a roommate and they lived together for a while and then she got enough money together to move up to Reno and get a divorce, and then, you know, I went up saw her a couple times up there, and then we started going out.
0: Dean and Darlene soon married and moved into a small house on Virginia Street in Vallejo. Darlene worked at Terry's Restaurant, and Dean worked as a cook at Caesars Palace Italian Restaurant. On the night of July 4th, Darlene planned to celebrate with some fireworks at home but she first took her brown Corvair for a drive to the home of her friend, 19-year-old Michael Majot. He later told police that they intended to drive to Mr. Ed's diner, but then decided to go to the park instead.
3: Bill Lee, my boss, we had gone over to the house after work and she was supposed to be out buying fireworks and we were gonna go over and light off a few firecrackers in the backyard. So we had everybody from work. My brother was over
0: there. Darlene parked her Corvair in the parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park, and the two were talking when a vehicle pulled up. The occupants laughed and set off fireworks in celebration of Independence Day before driving away. Soon after, another car pulled into the parking lot and stopped behind Darlene's Corvair. The driver waited for a moment and then drove off. Minutes later, what appeared to be the same car returned and parked. The driver stepped out and held a bright light as he approached the passenger side of the Corvair. He then raised a 9mm handgun and fired several shots into the car. Michael and Darlene were both wounded. The gunman turned and began walking back to his vehicle. Michael cried out in pain... And the gunman returned to fire several more shots at the already injured victims. The man then climbed back into his car and drove away.
3: I was taking the babysitter home, and when I got back, you know, we were sitting around, trying to just wondering, well, uh, what's going on? And then police showed up at the door. You know, they—they they didn't even tell me what was going on. They just said, "We, we need you down at the police station now."
0: Michael survived wounds to his leg, neck, and jaw. But Darlene was pronounced dead on arrival at the local hospital at 12.38 a.m. Two minutes later, Vallejo Police Department dispatcher Nancy Slover answered a telephone call that had been placed from a payphone located just blocks away from the police station. My name is Nancy Slover.
4: In the early morning hours of seven five sixty nine, I received a call from near hysterical teens reporting a shooting at Blue Rock Springs in the parking lot. That was at approximately twelve ten AM. Officers were on the scene when I answered another call at about twelve forty. my life did change dramatically at that point I answered the phone standard with the police department
2: I want to report a double murder
4: At that time I tried to uh, interrupt him to get his name and location because it was very important at then We didn't have computers you know we didn't have any we had ourselves and you had to be very good at multitasking. But
2: anyway, he said... I want to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9 millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year.
4: And his
2: closing was... Goodbye.
4: He was mocking me, is what he was doing. He was playing with me. He did it for shock, but that, and it worked. You know, it worked.
0: According to one popular and persistent myth, the killer's telephone call was recorded by police. This story appeared in a best-selling book written by former San Francisco Chronicle cartoonist Robert Graysmith.
4: I was in Grace Smith's book, although he never talked to me. You know, I read the book, and I says, Oh, my God, where's this guy getting this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) And then I put it back down.
0: Nancy Slover debunked the popular myth and clearly stated that the killer's call was not recorded.
4: No tapes or backup equipment was available during the 60s, at least not in our department.
0: According to Nancy Slover, the voice of the man who called the Vallejo Police Department indicated that he was at least 30 years of age or older. Surviving victim Michael Mageau was able to describe the gunman when interviewed by Vallejo police detective Ed Rust. According to Mageau, the suspect was a white male adult, short, possibly 5 feet 8 inches tall, heavyset, set approximately 195 to 200 pounds or larger with short curly hair, light brown, almost blonde and a large face. Investigators from Vallejo and Benicia believe that they were searching for the same killer and the bold sinister phone call raised fears that the gunman would strike again. As in the Benicia case The investigation examined the possibility that Darlene may have been killed by someone she knew. Vallejo detectives interviewed Darlene's family, friends, co-workers, and others, but no one could recall anyone who had ever bothered, harassed, or threatened Darlene, other than one individual named George. According to unconfirmed claims described in police reports, Darlene allegedly stated that George was a customer at the restaurant and she had repeatedly rejected his unwanted advances. George allegedly broke into Darlene's home and threatened to rape her. Investigators interviewed George and he provided an alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murder, which was reportedly confirmed by his wife. George was eliminated as a suspect and police could not identify any other potential suspects who had known Darlene Farron or Michael Mageau. The unanswered questions about the events on the night of Darlene's murder fueled speculation and created confusion.
3: There's just a lot of unknowns and nobody really knows why they were out there at Blue Rock Springs or what was going on. There's different rumors. It brought up a lot of questions.
0: The next chapter of the mystery was even more baffling when the killer came out of the shadows and forever changed the story. 26 days after the shooting at Blue Rock Springs Park, three envelopes arrived at the offices of three Bay Area newspapers. The envelopes contained three virtually identical handwritten letters and a piece of a coded message in a block of printed symbols. Written in blue ink, the letters began with a formal greeting. Dear Editor,
2: This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas, brand name of ammo, Super X. 10 shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. 4th July. The girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was western. Over. Here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and SF Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry, 1st of Aug, 69... I will go on a kill rampage, fry night. I will cruise around all weekend, killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again, until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend.
0: A crossed circle symbol had been drawn on the bottom of the page. In astrology, this symbol was used to represent the twelve astrological signs, also known as the Zodiac. Each of the newspapers eventually complied with the demand to publish the cipher, and news of the gunman's threats created fears that he would strike again. Experts and amateurs scrambled to decode the cipher, while investigators sorted through hundreds of tips from helpful citizens. The killer's puzzle became one of the most legendary true crime stories in American history. Many people are unfamiliar with the methods used to create ciphers, codes, and other secret messages, and the complexities of cryptography can often seem confounding. But there is one person who has spent years studying the killer's 408 symbol cipher to understand its construction, possible origins, and more.
1: My name is Dave Aranchak. I've been a computer programmer since about the second grade. I remember there was a computer in the classroom in my second grade class that kind of just sat there and I was invited by the teacher to type in a computer program that was in a computer magazine. And it just seemed like kind of a chore to do that because it's this basically this gibberish, but at the end of it it ended up making this cool little animation on the computer screen and so I got hooked at that point uh, at the power of of using computer programming to to basically turn that blank canvas of the computer into something much more interesting. So that gradually led to pursuing a computer engineering degree for my undergraduate degree. And then I got a master's degree in computer science, got a job building legal case management software and also cryptography software. My connection to the Zodiac case started with seeing information about the case online about 11 years ago. The thing that stood out to me was the the unsolved ciphers that are associated with the case. And because I have a computer programming background and I I enjoy puzzles, that seemed to be a a perfect combination for me to get hooked on trying to solve those unsolved ciphers on my own. Because I thought, well, maybe I could write a computer program build some software tools that would help come up with a solution to those ciphers. And here I am 11 years later, and not much further along with that, but still have a pretty strong interest in in studying the ciphers. And over those 11 years, I've collected a lot of information about the ciphers. That kind of culminated in my website, which is ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. My primary motivation at the time when I created the site was... I was really frustrated about finding useful information about the ciphers because there are many places online where conversations about the Zodiac case happen, and you get all kinds of information in those forums, and not all of it is good. A lot of it's just speculation and weird ideas and theories, but every once in a while, Somebody who knows a little bit about cryptography will come on, and they'll they'll give some reasons, observations about the ciphers, some you know, factual details about different aspects of those those ciphers. And so, I wanted to put all those in one place, basically. So that's um, part of the motivation for creating that site. But I also created my own software tools. I put those on that website. There's a few different tools that I built to help people in their own research into the ciphers to kind of help them with their own attempts to try to solve the unsolved ciphers. Another thing that came out of my research into the case was the talks that I gave at a cryptologic history symposium, which is given every two years. It's part of the NSA. Specifically, it's associated with their cryptographic history museum. Basically, it's a lot of people who study the history of cryptography code-making and code-breaking throughout the years, and warfare, and secret communications of all kinds. Occasionally, they'll have talks involving true crime and the use of secret messages in, in criminal contexts. So I submitted a talk a few years back about the Zodiac Cyphers, and much to my surprise, they, they accepted me. And uh, you know, so I've, I've given uh, two different talks there, The first one was basically about how can we test different ideas about how unsolved ciphers are created. When you're looking at an unsolved cipher, it may have certain qualities to it, and you're trying to find, well, what kind of cipher system would produce those qualities? And if you've identified a cipher system, how can you determine if that unknown cipher is created by that system? So that was the essence of the first talk that I gave. The second one was about how I noticed over the years, many people have discovered different statistical qualities and patterns in the unsolved ciphers of the Zodiac Killer. There's a lot of confusion about which of those patterns and statistics are genuine clues about the underlying cipher systems, and which ones are just random noise. You know, when you're looking up at the clouds and you see faces in the clouds, that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody put them there. And the same thing is true with the ciphers. Some of these patterns that people have found over the years are like the faces in the clouds. They're, they don't actually mean anything. They're just random noise that happens to look like something that can be interesting. And on the other hand, there are some things that, are, that do appear to be real clues in the ciphertexts. In and those are the those are the things you have to think about when you're going down a certain avenue of research. With, well, Which of these patterns and observations and statistics which of these clues should you spend your time with because if you're not careful you'll end up chasing faces and clouds you'd be chasing phantoms and then i have another one coming up this october which is basically about trying to use an artificial intelligence technique called deep learning which has been getting more and more prominent these days for a lot of classification problems and doing lots of interesting things uh, Probably one of the most well-known examples of using deep learning is to do face recognition. These big social media sites like Facebook use deep learning to classify photos that you upload. and They can automatically figure out who's in the photos. So it's a very powerful technology for classifying things. That's the essence of the problem we're facing with the Zodiac Cyphers is, well, what are they? What kind of cypher system was used to create them? And so goal for this talk is to see if we can use deep learning to figure out what kind of cipher system is being used for the unsolved Zodiac ciphers. Between the website and the talks at the NSA's symposium, I think that kind of got the attention of some TV producers. And over the years, they've been reaching out to me and I have ended up in a few TV shows related to the Zodiac case. So that's been an interesting kind of offshoot of this research effort. My goal with the website and the talks that I've been giving about the unsolved zodiac ciphers is to just put more information out there for researchers to use that can hopefully help lead to a solution to one or more of these unsolved zodiac ciphers.
0: When you and I met in San Francisco for the filming of the HLN series, Very Scary People, That was the first time that you and I had met in person, and it was the first time that I had discussed the ciphers with you in person, and I was astounded to find out that you have the ability to explain the ciphers and talk about these issues in a way that's easily understandable to someone like me. And I think there are a lot of people out there who are interested in the ciphers but struggle to understand these complex issues. And are looking for someone who can help them understand. And I know you've done a great deal to help me in that regard. So I'm hoping that we can discuss the 408 cipher and hopefully help people understand more about how it was constructed and what it might mean. Because when I hear someone talking about the zodiac ciphers, to me it just all sounds like gibberish. Is that something that sounds familiar to you? Do you hear people say that?
1: Yeah, it it can be a very technical topic. Cryptography in general. It can very quickly become technical and then, uh, you know, overly mathematical and scientific. And then people will tune out pretty quickly if uh, we really got into the weeds with that type of discussion. But at the same time, there's a core simplicity to it that you can see with things like, you know, in the in the old days, you could buy a breakfast cereal that have a decoder ring in it. And a decoder ring is a basically, is a very simple concept. You have an alphabet on a circle, you know, letters A through Z, and then another alphabet on another circle. And it's the same letters A through Z, but you can turn the second circle so it lines up differently with the first circle. And then that way you have uh, letters from the first circle associated with different letters in the second circle. And you can use that as a key to create or to decode a cryptogram. So even a you know a child can understand the basics of some of these simple forms of cryptography, you know of of hiding messages. The cryptograms sent by the killer were kind of a a, a slight extension to that idea. Instead of having a, a decoder ring, he created his own key that was a little more complicated. In a uh, traditional substitution cipher, which is what I'm using to refer to the what you can use that decoder ring to create. So when you, when you have the decoder ring, you can take your message and you can substitute the letters from your message with the letters in the decoder ring, and you end up with gibberish. And it's using the letters of the alphabet still. You know The letters A through Z are still in there, but it doesn't make any sense. It just looks like gibberish. But when you repeat the steps in reverse using your decoder ring, you end up with the message that you started with. And so the The important step there is to have the decoder ring to encode and to decode using the key.
0: Ciphers and puzzles like this were very popular in the late 1960s. They were part of children's games and part of mystery novels. It was a popular component in mystery stories back in that time.
1: That's right. And they were also prominently featured in newspapers. Every day the newspaper would publish things like crypto quotes And so you'd have a quotation, but it shows up as gibberish in the newspaper. Your job as the puzzle enthusiast is to figure out well what letters are standing for the original letters of the message. And those kinds of puzzles are very popular. So there was already kind of a general sense of how these things work among the public. Not everybody understands how a cryptogram works, but, you know, it's popular enough to be a routine feature in the newspapers of the day.
0: The 408 cipher, which was sent in July of 1969, was constructed of 408 characters, and it was sent in three parts. Each part was eight lines of 17 symbols.
1: The interesting thing about that cipher was that it used a lot of different symbols. It looked very unique. Most of the time, when you encounter a substitution cipher, you're just looking at normal letters of English, but they're just, they look scrambled. But in the case of this 408 character cipher, you have all these shapes and symbols in addition to normal looking letters. You also have letters that are reversed or flipped. So that's kind of an unusual aspect of it. And then the other unusual aspect of it is that it's written in this clean grid format. and and split into three parts. Uh, A lot of times when you see a a cryptogram, you'll see the spaces between words. They're still in there, so you can tell where the words start and end, but in this 408-character cipher, you didn't have that. The fact that there are more symbols and that there's no spaces between words increased the level of difficulty in solving this particular kind of cipher, but it turned out that it was still a substitution cipher, meaning for every symbol you encounter, you replace it with the corresponding letter of English, and it does produce a valid message. But the difference between this and a normal substitution cipher is that instead of having a single symbol that stands for a letter, let's say, for instance, E, in the original message, in a standard substitution cipher, you would replace the letter E with one other letter, like, let's say, Q. So every time you see an E, you replace it with Q, and then you do the other substitutions for the other letters in the message, and then you end up with a sequence of gibberish. But in the case of this 408-character cipher, the letter E had seven different symbols assigned to it. So it's not as simple as just finding that one symbol that was assigned to E. You had to find all seven. What this does is it makes it harder for the codebreaker to find patterns in the ciphertext because the patterns give away some information about the underlying message. For example, whenever you substitute the letter E with some other letter, if you do that for all of the E's, then that new letter is going to be the most frequently occurring letter in the ciphertext. And the reason is because the letter E is the most frequently used letter in English. You could take you know, a paragraph of English text and count up all the letters, you know, create a, a, a tabulation of how many times each letter happens, and letter E will usually be on the top by far. 12% is the amount in general. That, uh, that's the amount of um, times E will appear. It will appear in 12% of all English text. But in a homophonic substitution cipher, which is this variation that the 408 ended up being, the letter E is associated with seven different symbols, and that hides the fact that that underlying letter E was the most frequent letter in the message. And so that's designed to throw code breakers off track make to make it harder to figure out which letter is E.
0: So that indicates that the person who constructed this cipher had some knowledge about how ciphers were constructed and how people would attempt to solve
1: that cipher. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an extension of the idea of a substitution cipher. Substitution ciphers are some of the oldest kinds of uh, message-hiding technology. And this type of variation of substitution ciphers came about in, I want to say, the 1600s. And it was designed to make it harder to, to, to solve substitution ciphers because it was known at the time that substitution ciphers were rather weak meaning they're not very secure. You can use the patterns that you find in them to quickly discover what the underlying messages are. And that's you know they're not very well suited for secret, important information, like, say, your military plans. You don't want to use a standard substitution cipher. So homophonic substitution ciphers have been known since the 1600s, but I don't think they're as well known as the regular kinds of substitution ciphers that people see in newspapers and then read about in stories.
0: I think there's some confusion with some people, including myself. When you say substitution cipher, of course, my brain says, well, aren't all ciphers substitution ciphers? Because you're substituting a character for the actual text. So when you say a homophonic cipher, how does that differ from your average
1: cipher? Okay, so when you're talking about substitution ciphers, you're referring specifically to replacing letters in the original message with other letters. That is um, one major category of ciphers. Another major category is what's known as transposition ciphers. In a transposition cipher, instead of replacing letters with other letters, you're manipulating the message. So, for instance, you can take your, your secret message... And write it into a grid. So you have, say, 20 letters across in your grid, and so you have these rows of, of 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 characters that are 20 letters long. And then you rewrite the message, but you read you read down the columns. So you're reading down the first column, and then writing the letters in sequence. And then you do this for the remaining columns, and you end up with what's called a columnar transposition cipher, which is a it still looks like gibberish. If you don't know what you're looking for, they they can look just like a substitution cipher. But it wasn't substitutions that created it. It was a transposition, or in other words, manipulating the original layout of the message and reading it in a different way. And by reading it in a different way, you end up with a, a secret message.
0: The 408 cipher was sent in three parts and there's been some speculation that it was sent in three parts because the author was worried that if the cipher was sent to one newspaper, that newspaper might decide on its own not to publish it. So by splitting it up in three parts and sending one part to each of these three newspapers, he was increasing the odds that the cipher would be published. Do you think that's a viable explanation, or is there some other reason that someone might split a cipher into three parts like that?
1: I think that seems like a good explanation, especially since after the fact, when we look at what the newspapers did, they didn't all publish their part right away. I think the Vallejo was the first to publish their part. And then another part was published very quickly after that by the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle. And then the third part wasn't published by the Examiner until the day after. So they took some time to decide. And I imagine it was a a difficult decision because the letters that accompanied the ciphers basically said, if you don't publish these, I'm going to kill more people. So this threat to the newspapers probably could have created a sense of, you know, if we don't do this, we could be responsible for more murders happening. It created an ethical dilemma. Exactly. And so maybe the killer anticipated that and uh, took advantage of that. And, uh, By having each part be different, even though the letters that accompanied the cipher parts were the same, the cipher parts themselves were different. So it was a seemed like it was a calculation on the killer's part to, you know, it it wouldn't have been enough for one part to be published because the entire message is within all three parts. So I think that probably helped with the decision to publish, you know, in the examiner's case when they published that third part that completed the message.
0: It would be more difficult to notice patterns if you were just looking at one third as opposed to the entire message.
1: Yes, yes, that's true too. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what motivated their decision, but by that point, two of the three parts were already published. So, I mean, the cat was out of the bag by that, by that point. And from a code-breaking perspective, yes, the longer the message you have, the easier it will be to, to crack it because you have more data. When you have more data, you can find more patterns and exploit any weaknesses you find in the cipher types.
0: You mentioned the writer's threat to kill, again, if the cipher was not published in the newspaper. And of course, the three newspapers eventually conceded and published the cipher. What can you tell us about any efforts that were made by government experts or anyone involved in law enforcement to study and solve that cipher?
1: So there were some articles that came out at the time. They were calling this guy the the code killer. And uh, the articles about the letters and the ciphers, there was one that said that the Vallejo Police Department sent the code to the FBI, I think, on uh, August the 4th, 1969. And the article claims that an FBI agent said that it, it may take some time. So it's kind of unclear what that suggests. Either it suggests that they thought the code was difficult and therefore would take some time to do or it may mean they just had a they had a heavy workload and they just couldn't get to it but uh, but who knows and so there's been a lot of speculation about well was the FBI simply unable to crack that code i don't think that they would have been unable to crack that code if they really spent time on it because the homophonic substitution cipher is not difficult to break especially that one it's a little more difficult to do it by hand, you know, just using pen and paper. But they had sophisticated computer software at their disposal that they could have used. So I find it hard to believe that they would not have been able to solve it. There was also another report of the codes being sent to Navy cryptographers. I think they were at, uh, at Mare Island. I think there was a cryptography school, part of the Navy at Mare Island and near uh, Vallejo. But there was no report of a solution produced by them. And again, I don't know if it's because they didn't get to it or if they just simply couldn't figure it out. I, I've never been able to find any original sources, you know, of people within the Navy cryptography unit or whatever, or the FBI, you know, saying what they tried or what efforts they made.
0: So you're saying that even if there's no record or documentation of anyone in the government or law enforcement solving the cipher. You believe it's unlikely they would be unable to do it because that's what they do and they're experienced.
1: Yeah, that's what they do, and it's not a particularly sophisticated type of cipher. I mean, it, to the general public, it's rather unusual because it's a type of substitution cipher that's not commonly seen. And it's probably never seen in a you know casual context, like in a newspaper or in a, or in a uh, story but it's a variation of the type of cipher that, that is very common. And the variations may, do make it a little harder to solve, but not by much. Uh, in fact, it did turn out to be solved by pen and paper by very determined amateurs. Pertaining to the question of, did the FBI or any other agency come up with their own solution to that 408 cipher? In the NAPA police report, For the Lake Berryessa crime, when the killer attacked the couple at the lake, there's a a section of the report that talks about the the 408 and the validity of the decoded message that was produced by the amateur codebreakers. And it says when the investigating officers, presumably the NAPA officers, checked to determine the validity of the decoded message and how far the original ciphers had been decoded, It was then learned that the message had been decoded by at least two different sources, one being the amateur codebreakers in Salinas, and the other by the FBI in Washington. It was noted that these ciphers were broken independent of one another, and the FBI confirmed the validity of the original decoded message. It was also learned that there was a small portion at the very end of the coded message that had not been decoded for reasons unknown. So, as far as I know, this is the only reference to any agency having solved the 408 separately from, from the public, from the, uh, from the amateur uh, code-breaking couple.
0: Tell us about the amateurs and how they solved the cipher.
1: According to the news reports, a couple named uh, Donald Harden and his wife Betty, they saw the cipher in the newspapers by that Sunday, the, August third, nineteen 1969. Donald Harden was a high school teacher, Harden had a uh, childhood interest in, in code breaking, so he had, by that time, developed a lot of experience in just the recreational pursuit of cracking codes, presumably, you know, ciphers in and books and, and newspapers and magazines and things. So he had already developed the uh, techniques, you know, and, and they, are, they are things like doing frequency analysis. So... I I described earlier how the letter E in English is the most common letter. Mm -hmm. So even if you substitute it with a different letter like Q, it doesn't hide the fact that that's happening the most in your message. So you have a whole bunch of Qs in this secret message. So that's a hint that, well, since it's happening so much, it might be the letter E. So it's behaving like the letter E would do in English. And so you could replace all the Q's with E's and then see if there's other patterns that you can find, like words that start with E or words that end with E. You could find other symbols that are happening frequently in the ciphertext. And there are other letters that happen a lot in English, like T, A, I, and and so forth. They're the most common. Um, But in regards to the 408, because it was a homophonic substitution, those kinds of clues were hidden. But he still knew to look for certain patterns. There were other symbol patterns in the 408. For instance, uh, pairs of symbols. Donald and his wife would find these repeating symbols that would happen right next to each other. There were certain symbols in the 408 that happened in pairs and happened frequently. So you could find several different places in the ciphertext where these two symbols would happen. And they thought, well, what two letters of English could they be standing for? You know, these two symbols are happening. They're the same symbol. And they're happening together in the ciphertext over and over again. Well, if this is a substitution cipher, then they both have to stand for the same letter. So that's called a double in English, a double letter. And they looked at their cryptography books and learned that the most common double in English is LL. So words like will, shall, I'll, and kill. And the word kill is a very strong candidate for something that would appear in a secret message by a murderer. And so they were looking for these kinds of patterns that could stand for the word kill. And they did find that it truly did appear in the secret message and the in several different places and in this kind of trial and error process of f- figuring out where the word kill would appear they uh, gradually unravel the plain text because you would when you reveal the word kill in one place it might uh, expose part of another word in another place and you can kind of chip away at the message using this trial and error process so that's essentially what they did And, oh, and uh, Betty was credited with kind of trying to think about what the killer might be trying to say. So they didn't know what the message was yet. So she thought, well, maybe he would have started the message talking about himself. So he would start with the word I. This is a message about me, so I'm going to start it with the word I. And it turned out she was right. The confirmed solution to that cipher started with the word I.
0: The Hardens uncovered a chilling message, and a frightening glimpse into the mind of a killer.
2: I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife.
0: The hardened solution produced a discernible message in English. However, the last 18 characters appeared to be gibberish. It was just a string of letters. Could you talk about that a little bit and why that might be the case?
1: There are several different ideas about why that's there. When the Hardens came up with their solution, uh, it works for the entire message up until towards the end. So the last 18 letters, they don't seem to mean anything. No one's been able to figure out what they mean. It's basically just random sequence of letters, or it just seems random. The, the rest of the message is confirmed. There are several articles quoting the different authorities in the police department. And uh, there's also the, the president of the American Cryptogram Association confirmed the solution. But nobody really knows what's going on with the last 18. So there's still a lot of speculation around that. And at the time when the solution was published, it also included the, uh, that random sequence. So the newspaper articles would have that kind of random sequence of letters. And some people thought, well, the, the killer implied that he would give his identity in the message somehow. So that's a very tempting motivation to try to find the name in the last 18 letters. And so at the time, there were articles about how people were finding names by taking the letters and rearranging them. And I think the most prominent one from that was uh, Robert Emmett, the hippie. But it's not a very compelling solution to the last 18, because not only do you have to rearrange the letters kind of arbitrarily, but many of the letters in Robert Emmett, the hippie, are missing. They're misspelled. Like Emmett is E-M-E-T, and hippie is H-I-P-I. So it's it's not quite right.
0: There's not enough symbols
1: to construct that message. Right, yeah. You kind of have to fill them in. And, you know, you can go through the exercise of justifying that with, well, he made errors and mistakes in the rest of the cipher. You know, when you apply the key, you get misspellings and so forth. So you could say, well, maybe he did that in the end, too. But if you allow for that many mistakes, you can find thousands of different messages and names in the last 18, because you're even though you're only working with 18 letters, there are seven hundred and forty billion different rearrangements of those letters. How can, many? Seven hundred and forty billion. So you can think of it. You can think of it as like Scrabble tiles. You know, you're playing Scrabble, and you've got instead of the seven tiles, you've got eighteen tiles, and they are those letters in the eighteen at the end of the cipher. If you're rearranging the letters, you might be able to find different words and phrases. But uh, you know, if you come across one, it might seem significant but since there's 740 billion different arrangements there's a lot more possibilities of the names and phrases to appear if you use that approach basically you can come up with other names like i've I've done some tests and in addition to robert emmett the hippie i've found things like betty heiner the pigeon (laughs) (laughs) i'm he peter bruschetto You know, and if you take those letters and you account for, you know, a small number of mistakes, then that will fit. So the same, you can use the same reasoning to come up with these other answers. And that's what makes it impossible to say, well, Robert Emmett, the hippie, is clearly the right one. Well, it's not because there are so many different other ones that you have to rule out using the same method. And there's other ideas about what the last 18 might mean. So maybe it's a a key into one of his later ciphers. Maybe there's a way to apply it to the next cipher uh, and have it produce the secret message. Uh, Since we don't know what that message is or what the system being used is, we can't know if that idea is, is right or not. Maybe it really is the key. Who knows? But the explanation that I tend to prefer is the idea that it's just filler. And the reason is, Since the message was not quite long enough to split into the three parts, the killer just decided to fill it out with random characters until the three parts looked identical, meaning they have the same number of rows. They're the same length. Uh, I think they were each eight lines long, 17 letters across and eight rows of text. And if you're looking at them, you can't really tell Which part is the first part? Which part is the second part? And which part is the third part? If he hadn't put the filler in, it would have been fairly trivial to determine that that shorter part is the last part.
0: That brings up a good point. How did the Hardens or anyone else determine
1: which one of the three parts was the first, second, and third? My guess, because I I have to guess, because I don't have any source material that indicates what they've said about how they determined the order. Like, there's no newspaper article saying that they said, oh, we use this reasoning. But I think they didn't really need to know what the order was, because once they were doing this trial and error process of figuring out where the word kill was appearing or where these fragments of text that were repeating in the message, you know, once they identified those, you know, words and phrases would start to appear in each section. And so you could make guesses from each section, like, oh, this word that that has uh, ILL in it. I don't know what the first letter is, but I'm going to guess that it's a K because he's going to talk about killing that can be done independently in each section. They assumed that the key was applied the same to all three sections. So whatever symbol you're decoding in one section would also decode in the other two sections. And so they may have ended up with the plain text in the wrong order, but it was still sensible because they had enough in each section. They had eight lines of text. You know, Once one of them becomes sensible, all three of them become sensible, and then, then it's obvious what order they go in, because you can just read the message and figure that out.
0: The lack of a discernible message in the last 18 characters and the misspellings and some other issues have led some skeptics and critics to believe that the hardened solution is not a valid solution. Can you explain to us why it is a valid solution? And why anybody
1: would believe that it could be wrong? So the first thing that was said about the solution when it was in the newspapers, there were were some quotes from Vallejo PD. I think uh, Sergeant Lynch, he was, I think one of the, was he in charge of the uh, investigation, the Vallejo investigation? I think he said something like, uh, the, the solution checks out against itself. That it it checks out in all respects. And what he means is you can take the message for yourself and and verify that it's correct. And the way to do that is to to look at each symbol and make sure that each symbol stands for the same letter. So, for instance, uh, the letter Z in the message stands for the plain text letter E. Well, everywhere in that cipher, if you replace Z with E, And you do that for the other symbols, you end up with the message the hardens discovered. So you're not, in other words, you're not adding information to the message. All you're doing is replacing the symbol with the corresponding letter that belongs to it. And since there are only 54 different symbols in that cipher, that's the most information you're putting back into the message. By that, I mean each one of those 54 symbols you're replacing with a letter in the in the Mm ciphertext so you're taking that every occurrence of that particular symbol and replacing it with a letter so in that sense you're adding some information to that that message but you're only you're only doing that for 54 symbols and so you end up going from this key length of 54 to a message that's 390 characters long So for this message to be uh, invalid would mean that you basically accidentally came across a 390-character coherent piece of English using only 54 steps, 54 little bits of information.
0: And how likely is it that you could find a clear and coherent message in there, but it was wrong and there was actually some other clear and coherent
1: message in there? That depends primarily on the length of the ciphertext. But since the 408 is so long, and you know the, the part that's solved is 390 characters long, that's well past the, uh, the limit at which the solution can be guaranteed to be unique. In cryptography, there's a concept called the unicity distance. And all that means is, how long does the cipher have to be before the solution that you find for it is guaranteed or almost guaranteed to be unique? or that there's no other key that can produce an equally readable message, right? So if you want to say that the Hardens came up with uh, the wrong message using their method, then the the way to prove that would be to come up with another key that produces an equally plausible and readable and coherent message.
0: And And that
1: hasn't happened. That hasn't happened because—and the reason that hasn't happened— There's a mathematical foundation to that, which is what I refer to as the unicity distance. For substitution ciphers, for homophonic substitution ciphers, that distance is about 30. And what that means is if you have a cipher that is at least 30 characters long, then you're a lot more likely to to have the correct solution. But anything less than that, and you could find multiple equally plausible messages using different keys. And so that's why it's super important to have a long ciphertext when you're doing any kind of code breaking, because you need to be able to guarantee that uh, your solution is the correct solution. So there's, there's little to no possibility that the hardened solution is invalid under those uh, constraints.
0: There was confirmation of the hardened solution, although it came in a rather mysterious form. The hardened solution was published in the newspapers on August 9, 1969. On August 10th, someone mailed a card to the Vallejo Police Department that was addressed to Sergeant John Lynch, and the card included a key
1: to the cipher. Dear Sergeant Lynch, I hope the enclosed key will prove to be beneficial to you in connection with a cipher letter writer. Working puzzles, cryptograms, and word puzzles is one of my pleasures. Please forgive the absence of my signature or name, as I do not wish to have my name in the papers. And it could be mentioned by a slip of the tongue. With best wishes, Concerned Citizen. It was sent from an anonymous person a few years back when uh, one of the researchers, Mike Morford, did a uh, FOIA request. Uh, It ended up as part of the response that he got. And basically it's a card that says, hey, I've got the key to the cipher you know, at this point, the, the solution had already been published. I don't think he was trying to come up with the solution or beat the hardens to the solution. I think what he was doing was, uh, in the papers, they just showed the, the, the ciphertext and then the plain text, But they didn't show the mapping between the, the ciphertext and the plaintext, and that's called the key. The key tells you which cipher symbols decode to which plaintext letters. So I think he was supplying it as a convenience because there wasn't, any key published in the in the in the articles and basically it's just like a shortcut so when you have the the ciphertext you can look at the key that the uh, concerned citizen sent and very quickly do the substitutions so you don't have to you don't have to try to derive the key yourself by looking at the plain text solution that was in the papers so that's one possible explanation for why this card and key were sent uh, to the Vallejo PD
0: the concerned citizen key matched the hardened solution, right?
1: It does match for the most part. I would say I don't know, 90 to 95 percent of it, or whatever, matches the the Harden's key. There are some oddities to it, like they say that the cipher letter Q maps to four different letters F, K, L, and M, and there's not really a good explanation for that. That's not consistent with the hardened solution or you know the plain text messages that were published in the papers so there's a little bit of mystery around that Uh, whoever came up with this key it's possibly just like a a mistake but it's interesting to think about what if there was some other way for this conclusion to have been made about that symbol but that's kind of the unanswered question but there's other speculation around this card what if it's from the killer the killer decided to send the key for some reason and there's some reason to believe that because there's some aspects of the typed card that resemble the killer's style, the misspellings, the "I uh, don't want my name in the papers. It's similar to the the message uh, that turned out to be found in the 4 I, I won't give you my name because you may stop my collecting of slaves, referring to his victims. And so there, there's some parallels there that, that make some people believe it could be the killer. And then another explanation, which I don't think is the correct one is that the hardens themselves sent this but that doesn't make sense because they were already not anonymous and they had already sent their solution to the newspapers and consequently the code sheets were sent to the vallejo pd so it's not like they weren't already known to everybody at that point so what was the point of being anonymous and sending just the key to the plain text so i don't think that's a very plausible explanation I think the most plausible explanation is that seeing that there was no key published in the papers, you know, only the message was published, that prompted this person to, to supply a key derived from the message, so just trying to be helpful.
0: Reading directly from your website, ZodiacKillerCiphers.com, you listed three possibilities, and you just described them now, that the key was sent by the killer, that it was sent by the Hardens, or it was sent by some third party. And you raised some of the issues about the solution offered in the key. And I'm going to read from your website here. It says, let's say some person read the hardened solution, then decided to put together a handy key to show the substitutions used in the cipher. This key is very accurate, but the author of the key is saying the cipher text symbol Q is used to represent plain text letters f k l and m there is a simple error here because there are actually two q symbols the symbol is used for the plain text letter f and the symbol is used for the plain text letter m so the author of the key combined both symbols but where do k and l come from how did the key author deduce these from the hardens plain text solution so you're saying that's a situation where the key does not necessarily match the hardened solution and may represent some effort on the writer's part to do his own deciphering.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's unclear what this person's thought process was in coming up with the assignments for that Q symbol. What's unusual about that is, as you said, as you uh, quoted, the cipher actually has a forwards Q and a backwards Q. But in the... Concerned citizen key, there's a single Q with the, with the stem pointing straight down instead of to the left or the right. So it's just like one Q symbol that stands for all four of these letters. Uh, normally, a cipher symbol in this kind of cipher would only stand for one letter. There are other mistakes in the cipher that cause a cipher symbol to stand for more than one plaintext letter. But in this case, it's not clear why the author also assigned K and L. Sometimes you can look at the various newspaper articles and find differences because there are differences between the plain texts. Some of them are because they didn't want to uh, publish some of the more salacious parts of the of the message, and others were just like probably transcription errors, you know, where they just they just uh, got parts of the message wrong, or they had and corrected some of the mistakes because the key does have some mistakes in it
0: the FBI concluded that the key was, quote, substantially accurate. So that raises a question. If it was sent by the killer, why would it differ from the actual solution as found by the Hardens? And if it was sent by the Hardens, why would the key that they sent later under the name Concerned Citizen be different from their own key as they published in their solution? So that seems to indicate that the most logical explanation is, that it came from some third party who was operating with the information available in the newspaper.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. It's it's hard to make the case that it was either the killer or the Hardens. For the reasons you stated plus, you know, the Hardens didn't really have much motivation to send a key after the fact like one day after their solution was already published and known to the world and their names were in the paper and I I think even their street address was in the papers which is unusual. I think that was a more common practice back then, where if you were in a newspaper article, they would put your address, you know, so people would know where you live. So it's a little too late to become anonymous, you know, the day after all that. So uh, it doesn't make sense that they would have sent this key separately because they had already sent all their materials to both the papers and the authorities. So it doesn't make sense. Speaking of
0: not making sense, Let's talk a little bit about more of those solutions to the last 18 characters. You mentioned Robert Emmett the Hippie. There's theories that the names of various suspects can be found in there, including Arthur Lee Allen. And there are other theories about why those 18 characters may exist. Are there any other explanations for those 18 characters?
1: Well, first of all, there's the theory that the last 18 are just filler. That's a... You know, common practice in cryptography is to have padding or filler. Uh, A lot of times you'd have meaningless chunks of ciphertext to confuse the code breakers. um, And other times you're doing it because you have to have a certain length. So there's a requirement to have a message of a certain length. And if the message you're sending doesn't have that length, then you need to fill fill it out with some padding. Along those lines, you know, if that's the explanation for the last 18, well, did he just pick symbols at random? If you look at the last 18 cipher symbols, there are sequences of symbols that appear directly above them in the cipher text. The most notable is the QEHM sequence in the last line. If you look at the columns directly above, in the same columns, if you look at the rows directly above, you see the same sequence, QEHM. So why would that sequence be reappearing in the last 18 in in the gibberish at the end? Uh, one explanation is it, to produce the filler, the killer just randomly copied chunks of ciphertext into that last part. And there's other sections of the last part that also seem to be repeated in columns, in the same columns of the rows directly above. So that's one explanation. And those those characteristics, when you do statistical tests, they appear to be statistically significant, meaning they're... Not that likely to be a product of chance, you know, like random noise. Um, but it's still kind of an open question. Did the killer, did he in a very determined way produce filler for the last line by copying symbols from above? Those copied symbols are some evidence to that hypothesis.
0: These last 18 characters provide a lot of fodder for amateur Code breakers and theorists. You mentioned earlier how people can look at a cloud and see a pattern, even though no pattern is actually there. What, same thing happens when people look at the last 18 characters. They see all kinds of names and patterns in there. This is a common problem when it comes to ciphers.
1: Yes. This case has attracted the attention of both amateur cryptographers and professional cryptographers. You know, there there aren't too many professional cryptographers that actively look into this uh, aspect of the case. I find that there are a lot more amateur cryptographers that do, and what a lot of them are doing is that they're applying manipulations to the cipher in some way that cause something interesting to pop out. So, in the case of you know the example of the last eighteen symbols of the four hundred eight, the manipulation was to just rearrange the letters until something that kind of looked like Robert Emmett, the hippie appeared. And it's not even spelled right. You know, there's letters missing. It's, it doesn't quite spell Robert Emmett, the hippie, but it was close enough to make whoever did it interested in the result. And so that potential solution was, uh, was published. And it, I think the article even said that they tried to find people with that name to interview them, you know, to see maybe, maybe there really was a killer named Robert Emmett, you know, in that area. Um, I don't know what ever happened to that line of investigation, but it's not based on, uh, on very solid ground, in my opinion. And that's just one example of a uh, type of manipulation that can be done. It's, I would call it pseudo-cryptographic. It, it kind of falls into the same category as, uh, as numerology, where people things like they're playing games with numbers and then taking like a, a word or a phrase and linking it through the numbers that represent each letter. Like the letter A can be replaced with the number one, since it's the first letter, you know, and B with two, C with three. And you can take a message and add up the numbers and it can, you know, if it produces a birthday for a a suspect, then they would consider that to be significant and possibly like intentionally placed by the killer in either the letters or the ciphers. But that type of manipulation produces almost infinite number of coincidences like that. so you can go through those exercises and, and show that their suspect's birthday is only one among an endless supply of possible dates, street addresses, you know other significant numbers associated with the case and so forth. That, that's another example of a, of a kind of manipulation that accidentally produces something interesting. Um, I also like to call them coincidence generators, Mm. because sometimes when you're looking at the cipher symbols, they can look like something interesting and you do some manipulations and then they really start to look interesting. But what you're doing is you're forcing this coincidence to happen. And the reason it's a coincidence is because you can use the same manipulations to produce other interesting things. But they they might not be interesting to you if, if you're looking at it one way, because you might have a suspect in mind. So you have a manipulation in mind that produces the name, say, uh, Arthur Lee Allen. So if you think Arthur Lee Allen is a suspect, you would only care about the manipulations that produce that name. But you can use your method. Other people can use your method to produce other names, like uh, Ross Sullivan, say. And since you're using the same method, well, which one was right? Well, it depends on uh, who your suspect is, <laughs> because that's usually the driving force behind uh behind these types of uh, manipulations. People are trying to find evidence to support their suspect. So they're, they're staring at these ciphers, and, that, and these coincidences pop out when they apply these, these manipulations. And what they don't realize is they're falling into a trap because the manipulations have a built-in problem of generating these coincidences.
0: And they already favor your preconceived conclusion because of the methods you've used. So people bring their own bias to it, And then the methods they use become a form of confirmation bias where they're looking for what they're looking for and they find it. And the fact that they found it confirms their approach.
1: Exactly. There's a good example of that with Gary Stewart, where he was picking out symbols vertically from the ciphers. So he would pick a symbol from one column, a different symbol in the second column, and so on. And in his book, he was making the case that uh, his father had studied Japanese writing and when it's written in this vertical form, so he was kind of using that as a kind of a after-the-fact justification for for his manipulation of the ciphertext to produce his uh, suspect's name, his father's name. Uh, so, so that's a that's a good example of uh, of what you just said. You know, people use their biases after the fact to to justify what they did in the first place. In the uh, over a decade that I've been looking at this case and looking at solutions that people have been producing for the ciphers you know they'll they'll find their suspects name or they'll even come up with some fragments of of English you know of a, of a message that uh, they think that the killer has put in the ciphers the big question is well how do you know whether or not their solution is valid so how do you know that manipulations are are not valid because substitution ciphers are a type of manipulation right and we did that for the 408 there's You're manipulating the cipher by substituting the symbols for letters. Well, for me, the guiding principle has been, can you use the same method to produce other messages that are equally plausible? And so for the case of the 408, no one's been able to produce a equally plausible message using the exact same method, which is to apply a simple substitution key to that 408 cipher. But if for a lot of these invalid solutions, like the best example is probably any kind of anagramming, that means rearranging the letters kind of randomly, rearranging the symbols in a random order. What some people will do is they'll apply a key, but instead of getting a coherent message, they'll get a bunch of random gobbledygook. It's using the letters A through Z, but it doesn't make any sense. They'll think, hey, there's some something that kind of looks like English in there, but it's not quite right yet, but if I rearrange some of those letters, put them in a different order, then it'll make more sense. So they start to do that. They start tweaking the, the plaintext until it makes more sense. But as soon as they do that, they've opened up a lot more possibilities in the key for the cipher. Because not only are they applying a substitution, but they're applying arbitrary rearrangements of the result. And if you use that same method, you can produce a completely different plaintext and that has similar fragments of English that make sense to somebody. And so that's why that particular example isn't valid. You can't verify that either of those solutions is the one that the killer intended to put in his secret message. The more solutions you can
0: find using a method, the less valid that method is.
1: Correct, and the main reason is because you can't prove it. So let's say you accidentally came across the killer's real method for doing it, and he did use anagramming, like in the example I just described, you still wouldn't be able to prove it because you can use the same method to produce other messages. You would have to have some other source of evidence to prove that that's what he did to make the message. In the case of the 408, you didn't have to do that because there's only one message that we know about that such a short key can produce. And that's the main thing there is that the key is so short yet it produces this long, coherent message. The steps to do it are very simple. You don't add a bunch of information in order to produce the message. In the case of the anagramming that I described, you have to add a lot of information. So by that I mean rearranging the plain text so it makes more sense to you. You're adding information to it, and that comes from you, not from the killer. I don't want to discourage people from trying out all these types of manipulations and ideas. It sounds like I am because I, I come across a lot of these kinds of solutions. Sometimes they're really frustrating because the person who's promoting them, they believe 100% that they've got the right answer. It's like a student in a classroom who did the math wrong, but is convinced that they did it right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost impossible to convince them otherwise. But on the other hand, people are trying out a lot of creative and interesting ideas that, that, that I've never come across before. And some of them, you, know, you never know which ones might actually lead to, you know, a breakthrough. The real key is to be open-minded to the verification process, because in the end, you have to be able to prove that your solution is correct. With the 408, there's a pretty well-established proof that it's the correct answer. For your sol- potential solution to have wide acceptance by not only people that are marginally interested in the case, but by the authorities and whereas they could say this is definitely the correct solution that has to go through that verification process.
0: You're not discouraging amateur code breakers from attempting to solve these ciphers. You're just questioning whether or not they're using the proper methods or whether or not their results are valid.
1: That's right. Yeah. And in fact, I'm impressed with some of the creativity I've seen from people who, who, who look at these codes. They, they really do think of the problem in a much different way than I could ever imagine. In some cases, they're really off track, but in other cases, their ideas are really interesting. And even though they can't be confirmed yet, maybe they'll actually lead to something. But the ones that are frustrating the most are the ones that, um, you know, if you don't believe that their solution is right, then you're their enemy. Yeah, you know, there's they can be kind of like conspiracy theorists, and some of them are just a little crazy.
0: <laughs> and I don't think you would discourage amateur code breakers from trying to solve the ciphers because they're were four ciphers sent by the killer, only one of them was deciphered, and it was deciphered by amateurs.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that's part of the appeal of the ciphers in particular and the case in general, is that you know, all of this information is public, the first cipher was solved by amateurs. And so there's a kind of a citizen detective effort going on that is appealing because of that, you know, it, it happened once, it could happen again.
0: Could the 408 have been constructed by an amateur who played with ciphers as a hobby? Or is there any indication that this cipher required a level of skill and
1: perhaps training? There are several possibilities there. Let's say the killer picked it up in the military. There's been a lot of speculation that the killer had a military background based on some of the evidence found at the crime scenes. The things he would talk about in his letters, they mentioned things that he could possibly learn in the military like making explosives, possibly things that he would pick up in military training. Cryptography is something that's taught in the military. The, the kinds of ciphers you get in the military tend to be things that are transmittable, and you can't really transmit those weird symbols, those mm-hmm. shapes and things. So you would normally see you know, letters and numbers, just regular letters and numbers that still look like gibberish, but they're easily transmitted via radio. But, you know, it's still possible that he might have picked it up and just kind of extended those ideas into making something like those ciphers in his letters. Another possibility is that he picked it up on his own. He did his own reading. Maybe he went to the library and got cryptography books. There were plenty of cryptography books at the time that described the kinds of ciphers he was making, or at least the kind that we know about him making for the first one, the homophonic substitution. That's been well documented in a lot of cryptography books. Another possible source for his cryptography ideas might be detective magazines, you know, these Pulp Fiction magazines, all these crime stories, these ostentatious villains. You know, as we know from the letters, the killer presented himself as a very ostentatious villain. And this persona of this criminal supervillain is something that ties in well with the kinds of stories that are in these detective story magazines. And if you look into those stories, there's a kind of a long history of cryptography being featured. You know, secret codes being featured in these in these stories. You know, a criminal will send a code. In fact, there's a story about a character named Z who calls newspapers and threatens the public through these uh, newspapers and phone calls. And there's other stories that involve. You know, they'll they'll publish actual cryptograms. The story will involve the detective trying to figure out the key to the cryptograms and uh, there was uh, one particular detective magazine series that i think started in the 20s that even featured a series of technical articles written by people who ended up founding the american cryptogram association which is a group of like-minded code makers and code breakers that just have fun making and breaking codes in a uh monthly journal that is circulated among the members. You know, they were founded in the 20s by these people who were writing articles for detective fiction magazines. And they'd have things like, you know, how to make uh, different kinds of ciphers and w- how to find weaknesses in different ciphers and how to break them. And so they were writing about both sides of the equation, you know, how to make a secure cipher and and how to exploit insecure ones. So it's, it's interesting to me that there was such a flourishing bed of information there about about cryptography, you know, and something that was kind of pulpy, you know, these these kind of cheesy detective stories, which were, you know, a dime a dozen. But there was some real cryptography going on, you know, in these articles that would appear alongside them. So I kind of lean towards that as being a, you know, a source of this information because he, he kind of projected Some aspects of these ostentatious criminal personalities that you would probably see in one of these stories. You know, he had some elements of that in his letters.
0: Someone who had grown up on detective fiction would know that ciphers are often a part of crime
1: stories. Right. So I'm I'm curious if um, if anyone will ever discover, you know, some old detective magazine article somewhere that has homophonic substitution in it, because I think that would be the the way in, if this is really where he got his inspiration. I don't think he came up with homophonic substitution on his own. It's possible, I guess, but I think it's more likely that he picked it up somewhere. So if he really was inspired by these magazines, these detective stories and magazines and these cryptography articles that may have accompanied them, it would be really interesting to find one that mentions that kind of cipher that resembles the 408 many of these stories are out there that they just haven't they just kind of got lost to time nobody's found the um, you know all of the cryptography articles or stories that mention particular kinds of ciphers
0: but you don't think that the 408 by itself indicates any level of training or expertise
1: you could learn how to create that pretty quickly if you already know how the most common kind of substitution cipher works which a lot of people did they were uh, amusing themselves with uh, the cryptograms that would appear in newspapers. So like crossword puzzle enthusiasts would work on the crossword puzzles, and then the cryptogram enthusiasts would try to decode the crypto quotes in the newspapers. And so it wouldn't take much to add a little bit to that bit of knowledge to extend it to the idea of these homophonic substitution ciphers. You know, casual interest in cryptograms could very easily lead to learning about how homophonic substitution works. So it doesn't necessarily indicate, you know, extensive training or anything like that. It's not something most people have heard about. Homophonic substitution is a pretty niche piece of cryptography that mostly cryptographers know about, but few others know about. So it seems likely that he picked it up somewhere, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't need to, you know, go to a cryptography training school or a, get an advanced degree to, to figure that out. There are all sorts of possibilities There have been
0: many unsolved ciphers throughout history, and there are some which have been
1: deciphered hundreds of years later. Yeah, the Copiola cipher was a good example of that. I think that one was 200 200 years old by the time it was solved. It was solved by Kevin Knight and his team over at the University of Southern California. And that was, interestingly enough, that was also a homophonic substitution. So it had all these weird symbols, more than you would need And I think it ended up being like a instruction manual for some secret society. So it was an interesting document. And it turned out to be a real homophonic substitution cipher that nobody bothered to crack for for, for 200 years. To this day, the 408 remains one of the most interesting ciphers in history.
0: The killer's deciphered message terrified citizens of the Bay Area, and he clearly stated his desire to kill again. Authorities created a strategy to publicly engage the killer in a dialogue with hope that he would spend time communicating instead of killing. In an effort to provoke a response, investigators publicly expressed doubts about the writer's claims and asked him to provide more details about the crimes. Then... Another letter arrived at the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle.
2: Dear Editor, This is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good times I have had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up when they do crack it, they will have me.
0: The writer addressed news reports and speculation regarding his actions on the night of the second shooting.
2: On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor, in back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly, so as not to draw attention to my car.
0: The writer then described a witness who had apparently seen the killer using a payphone after the attack at Blue Rock Springs Park.
2: The man who told the police that my car was brown was a Negro, about 40 to 45, rather shabbily dressed. I was at this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cops when he was walking by. When I hung the phone up, the damn fucking thing began to ring, and that drew his attention to me and my car.
0: The writer then provided more details about the murders on Lake Herman Road.
2: Last Christmas, In that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice... In the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage.
0: The Zodiac had a plan to get that front page coverage, a plan that would succeed far beyond his expectations. Soon, there would be more letters and more murders because this was just the beginning of the Zodiac story.
1: Zodiac A to Z Written and produced by Michael Butterfield Featuring David Aranchak of ZodiacKillerCiphers.com Zodiac Voice by John Knight Zodiac A to Z Produced for
0: ZodiacKillerFacts.com